Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I was heading home on a late night flight. The cabin was dark and quiet when suddenly a cry broke out, a baby's cry. I had seen the baby when I made my way to my seat and I knew that this might happen. The baby was inconsolable. In my half-asleep state, I was surprised that I felt no annoyance towards the baby or his parents, as I might have expected and as I have in the past. Instead, I felt a type of kinship. I, too, was a baby once. All of us on the plane were once a crying baby. And then that feeling went deeper, and I noticed that somewhere inside my soul, there was a small, vulnerable part of me that was still crying, crying out of powerlessness, of fear, and frustration. On that particular night, just a few weeks ago, as I flew back to our country and back to my home, my inner child was crying over the many most recent United States Supreme Court decisions. I still feel sadness and a disconnection from many other people in our country. I feel afraid that things are going to get worse. And in my lowest moments, there is that small young part of me that is not only crying, but is saying, what is the point? Why keep fighting when we are losing? In the same way that each of us on that plane were once a crying baby ourselves, I know that every religious leader, activist, and ancestor that I admire has felt this feeling, the feeling that comes when what we know is just and right meets resistance. At times like this, I turn to my community, I turn to those of you who have felt these feelings. And rather than collapsing in despair, you face that resistance and keep pushing back. Our world is full of beings that see resistance and rather than giving in, they innovate, persist, and come together to keep alive what is most important. The philosopher and civil rights legend Grace Lee Boggs said, most Americans have a very short range idea of history. They don't realize that mass production only began about 100 years ago. They don't realize that capitalism has only existed for a few hundred years. They don't realize that there's been a huge evolution of culture and paradigm shifts in everything, in governance, in education, in work, down through the ages. And it's that lack of a long range view that can make you think that when change happens, when you see ruins and disintegration, that it's the end of life. 
Grace goes on to say, one of the things that I learned from my father is that a crisis is both a danger and an opportunity. And how you take advantage of the opportunity of the crisis rather than becoming despairing is something we're all facing all of the time, especially in this time. The opportunity that we have now to reimagine everything, to reimagine work, to think of it as productive, not just of things, but of well-being, to think of governance in a different way, to think of education in a different way. What an opportunity. What a time to be alive. Grace said these words in 2015 when she was 100 years old. A lot has happened since 2015, and yet not quite as much as all that happened in our country and in our world during the 100 years of Grace Lee Boggs' life. Now is not the time to give up. It's okay to hear that part of ourselves that is crying, that is asking for comfort, but we must also acknowledge that our sadness, our fear, our frustration, it's only gonna get worse if we give up now. So today I thought I could share with you a couple stories that have been motivating me to keep going and to not give up on the causes that I care about most. I was on a boat in the Chagres River in Panama when I learned about the Azteca ants. Azteca ants have a symbiotic relationship with cacropia trees. The trees provide them with food and shelter, and in return, the ants protect the trees from insects and vines, other plants that might harm them. In 2020, during the beginning of the pandemic, a bored teenager named Alex accidentally hit a cacropia tree with his slingshot, making a hole in the trunk. The next day, when Alex came to see the tree, the hole was gone. Alex decided to make this an experiment, so he recruited a bunch of his friends, other teenagers, and they strategically drilled holes in the trees to see what was happening. They noticed that within two and a half hours, the holes were significantly smaller, and within 24 hours, the holes were gone the Azteca ants were not only protecting the trees, they were healing them. Their research showed that not every ant in the colony worked to fix the holes, but those that did were not deterred by all the new holes that kept appearing. With each new hole, they worked together to repair what had been broken and to protect what they loved. Like the Azteca ants, we can protect what we love and we have the ability to repair what has been broken. In 2011, Hurricane Irene was a category three storm that caused widespread damage and destruction in the Caribbean and all along the East Coast, leading to the deaths of 49 people and costing the US government approximately $13.5 billion. During Hurricane Irene, a group of scientists were concerned when they saw that a small migrating shorebird, a wimbrel that they had named Chinquapin, was flying directly into the eye of the storm where gusts were 110 miles per hour. 
We were all walking around on pins and needles, hoping that the bird made it through, one of the scientists said. We had to wait a full 48 hours before the next set of data points came in. When 48 hours had passed, they were all a little shocked. Chin Quapin, the little bird, had survived the storm and was alive and well in the Bahamas. With determination and grace, like Chin Quapin, we can make it through the chaos of this moment. For over a hundred years now, the American chestnut trees have been dying. The trees that used to live for up to 500 or 800 years now only live for 10 to 15 years. There used to be so many American chestnut trees that it was said a squirrel could make its way all the way up the East Coast, just hopping from one chestnut tree to another. In 1904, a forester in the Bronx Zoo noticed that the chestnut tree's leaves were turning brown and withering and falling to the ground. A fungus was killing the trees. And despite many efforts, there is still no cure. Susan Frankel wrote in her book, American Chestnut, the blight killed more than three and four billion trees, enough trees to fill nine million acres of land, enough trees to cover Yellowstone National Park 1,800 times over, enough trees to give two to every person on the planet. We've been trying to figure out how to save the American chestnut tree from this blight for over 100 years. We're still trying. Blair and Mary Carbaugh are a couple in Danville, Pennsylvania, who are still trying. Planting a thousand trees on their land, Blair says that those, out of those that they've planted, only 12 have survived. But Blair and Mary are sticking with it. They're still planting trees. Blair is 91 years old and Mary is 81. This is the story about people coming together, willing to try something that might not work. And if it does, it will take a long, long time, longer than most of us have. But the Carbaz and others like them, they don't mind that. They still think it's worth a try. Sarah Fern Fitzgibbons is the Director of Restoration at the American Chestnut Society. She says that Blair and Mary Carbaugh are not the only ones who refuse to give up on the American chestnut. A lot of people that I work with, she says, are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, sometimes 90s. They're the ones who saw the species decline during the original pandemic. And they're really the ones who say, I am going to do this for my grandkids. I'm going to do this for my great grandkids. This is a 100, 200, 300 plus year long vision. And we have to keep passing on the hope and love of healthy forests. Some of the causes that we are fighting for today, they may be 100, 200, 300 year long visions. We have to keep passing on the hope and love for a better future. Our ancestors did it for us. Let's carry their dream forward. I have one more story. Before the United States Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade in 1973, it was almost impossible for many Americans to get abortion care. 
This led many people capable of pregnancy to seek whatever care they could find, often leading to serious complications and death. One coroner in 1951 estimated that in his career alone, 1,200 women died from back alley abortions. Women, especially poor women and women of color, were dying at alarming rates across the country without legal protection. Many people were too afraid to take action. And some people chose to take action anyway. Clergy from around the country, church ministers, including Unitarian Universalist ministers, along with rabbis and even some Catholic priests and nuns, created the Clergy Consultation Service. Led by Reverend Howard Moody of the Judson Memorial Church in New York, the leaders of the Clergy Consultation Service traveled around the country, meeting with religious leaders in church basements to educate them on how to join the cause and strategize within their communities. They quickly realized that they would also need to find a way to inform the public that clergy were available to support people seeking abortions. The group placed an ad in the New York Times with their phone number stating, we believe it's our religious duty to give aid and assistance to all women with problem pregnancies. When someone called the hotline number, they would hear a recording that would inform them of the names and numbers of religious leaders in their area who would be available for consultation. Once a call was received, an in-person meeting would be arranged during which clergy would provide spiritual support and if the woman chose to pursue an abortion, they would connect her with a safe clinic and plan her travel. Each site that the women were sent to were carefully vetted by members of the clergy consultation service. These were often members of congregations who would pose as women seeking abortions to evaluate the care that was provided, not just evaluating the safety of the doctor's practices, but also evaluating if they would meet their patients with kindness, dignity, and respect. Many of these clergy had the support of their congregations, but there were some who did not, occasionally leading to the loss of their positions, and in some cases, the end of their formal congregational ministry. While there were many reasons to be afraid and discouraged, the clergy felt that the sheer number of phone calls that they were receiving every week from people seeking abortions, that showed how great the need was. Along with their counseling support, clergy used their pastoral power to advocate in hospitals, with lawmakers, and by writing to local newspapers. They consistently argued that the legislation restricting abortion access was discriminatory because of how it disproportionately impacted poor women and women of color. One minister in Missouri, William Kirby, estimates that he helped 3,000 women obtain safe abortions. In 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade was passed, there were more than 600 clergy consultation locations across the country. The clergy destroyed their records to protect the people they were serving. So it's hard to estimate the exact number of people who received their support. Today, the clergy consultation service persists. They are now called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. 
They provide clinic blessings, education on reproductive ethics, and financial support to people seeking reproductive care. They did not give up. They will not give up. I know for people who are older than me, folks who are in my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, the Supreme Court decisions impacting reproductive health, climate justice, religious freedom, indigenous sovereignty, this may feel unbearably discouraging and demoralizing for you at this moment. But we cannot give up now. Whatever causes make you cry, make you rage, these are the causes that you have to keep fighting for. So let us work like the Azteca ants to repair what has been broken in the foundation of our society. Let's remember little Chinquapin, the bird, and her resilience and our own ability to navigate through virulent storms. Let's continue to plant seeds, hoping that perhaps one day they will survive and prosper. Let ours be the story that inspires future generations to never give up on what is just, what is right, and what is true. May it be so. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to place your hands over your heart. In namaste, I bow to the divine in you. Our benediction is from Wayne Arneson. Take courage, friends. The way is often hard and the path is never clear and the stakes are very high. Take courage, for deep down there is another truth. You are not alone. Let us keep this face, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. For your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, my divine. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. For your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, my Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.